chapter 5. The scripture reading this morning will be the last two chapters of the book, verse 19 and 20. So if you would stand with me for prayer and then the reading of those two verses, we'll honor the Lord by calling upon Him to come and assist us and move in us His glory. Let's pray together. Now, blessed Lord, we once more and again bow before You. Lord, we come now to the preaching of Your Word, the explaining of the Gospel. Lord, that which sets forth what we are to believe and what we are to do. Lord, where we are uh, deficient, Lord, supply what we need. Where we are willfully ignorant, Lord, rebuke us. Lord, where we are stumbling in our daily life, we pray for strength and the courage that is needed to amend that life, that, that practice. Now, Lord, we don't rest in our own strength. Just our gathering and praising Your name, reminding ourselves of Your strength, Your power, Your honor, Your glory, Lord, all that You are, we're reminded, Lord, of our deepest and greatest need, which is You. Our communion and fellowship with You is first and foremost our greatest need. And Lord, we want to draw near to You this morning with the, the Word of God. And so we do pray, Lord, that You would send to us uh, the Spirit of truth to apply, to give understanding, to give light, to give sensitivity, to give a willingness to hear, Lord, not just with our ears, but with our hearts. Now, Lord, all that we are, we lay before You and we pray, O oh Lord, not just for uh, acknowledgement and intellectual acknowledgement, we pray for conforming, for to, to, to conform to Your Word that you might be glorified in our submission and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, beloved, chapter 5 of James, verse 19 and 20. James writes, he says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul. From death and will cover a multitude of sins. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. It's been, it's been suggested that James brings in a, very, a very abrupt ending to this letter. And, and that might be true. It certainly seems an odd way to end a letter. But I think when we look at the letter as a whole, we can see that James is circling back around and he's reminding us of some things that he brought up in the very beginning of the letter. And we'll point some of those things out as we go. Now these two verses are, again, like the previous verses, are to inspire us to obedience. Now, James does this by, by setting up a scenario showing us that there is a great benefit in the body of Christ having a ministry of reclamation, that is, winning back 
the straying saint. Now he does this by pointing out the possibility or the probability of each saint, professing believer, true Christian, straying from the truth. That we ought to consider the probability that any number of us or any one of us can stray from the truth. So taking that in mind, he goes on and he talks about the one who goes to turn that person back. Back to what? Well, back to the truth. The truth is being that that gospel truth, that everything that pertains to the gospel pertains to the whole paradigm of what we are to believe and even how we're to live. We are certainly to believe the truth. And we're going to talk about that in a, in a, a sermon, not this morning, in another sermon, where we are to live out the truth. Both of those are essential and important for the believer. And you can stray by adopting a different understanding of things. You can stray there. You can stray in doctrine. And you can certainly stray in practice. Sometimes there's a straying in practice while maintaining an integrity of the doctrine, of your doctrine. So it's inconsistent. Nevertheless, we're talking about straying in error here. We're not talking about being consistent. We're talking about a numbness and a blindness that can happen to any number of us, any one of us. But he also goes on and he wants to encourage us and motivate us that any, just as anyone here might go astray, anyone here might go and reclaim that person. Now, there is certainly a ministry of reclamation that the elder, the shepherds, uh, the more mature of the church should do and are doing. And even the preaching of the gospel this morning is an activity of reclamation. Every time a minister preaches the gospel, every time we set up under the Word of God, what is the message doing? It's calling us back to something, isn't it? It's calling us into favor or in bringing us ourselves from our own perspective, bringing us in more in conformity to the Word of God and to a, a zeal and a, 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 a passion for the truth. That happens every Sunday. It happens every time the gospel's preached or any time there's a Bible study. The whole purpose is that preaching is not an end in and of itself, is it? Why do we preach if there's not going to be some conformity to the preaching of the Word and truth? The preacher should not preach to simply hear his voice. And I promise you that's not my goal. I don't even like the sound of my voice when I listen to it. It's not something that I delight in at all. Nevertheless, it's not the end and of itself. We gather under the preaching of the Word of God so that we might be conformed or even using the, the, the word Paul uses, transformed by the Gospel. So that we, what does it mean to be conformed and transformed? It means to be brought into conformity with something, with truth. To be conformed to truth is to be conformed to Christ. Who claimed he was the word of truth. 
The one who goes after that erring brother or sister does a very fine work in the body of Christ. And it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't have to be the minister. It could be any one of you who sees their brother or sister slipping or sliding, maybe in some idea. How about you young ladies, uh, college now, you know, you start slipping into feminism because it's so rampant in school. And then you forget what the Bible says about the role of women, the role of genders. I think that happens. I mean, some uh, uh, you might go to your your friend and love them and say, I think we need to really pull back on some of this stuff we're hearing. And remember, we are not the one who defines the roles of men and women. The one who made us does. He defines the role. He defines the family. He, he's the one that sets out what a husband and a father should do and a wife and a mother should do. He sets out and, and lays all of these things out as he does the life of the church and even in other places. No, that's what we're to do. The one who's to go after the erring brother could be any, any one of you. In fact, I do agree with one minister as I listened to a sermon on this particular text. He described... He described the problems of the church like broken eggs. By the time it comes to the minister, it's like being handed a, 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 a box of, of a dozen broken eggs on the floor. And the minister is supposed to pick all that up and put it all back together. Because, And the point being is by the time it gets to the minister, it's a problem. It's a problem because, well, we're not practicing these verses. That we have a Christian duty as brothers and sisters to go after our friends and, and congregants and say, I'm concerned. I have these reasons. Help me with this. Now let me say something about a busybody because that's not what James is promoting. James isn't promoting being a busybody. In fact, I would say this. The typical problem in a church is not busybodies. Hardly anybody wants to be involved in the affairs of others. That's really the, the bigger issue. Honestly, we shy away from that. And we have to really remind ourselves of, of God's call and commandment to do so, to really even pray for motivation to do these things. Because we don't want to do it. We don't like doing it. It's hard. It's difficult. We're afraid of losing friendships. We're afraid of fracturing a, you know, some relationship. And we just don't want to get into the sticky weeds and the thorns. But I think what we're going to have to acknowledge, as we'll see in the coming sermons, is it's a command. You know, I think this is the way we can judge the health and well-being of this body. If we're not willing to do this, I think we need to say we're really sick. We're sick because we just don't want to love one another to that degree. And that's a problem. But the motivation comes in verse 20 when he says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. Now notice that you who go after someone else, the, here's, here's the, the motivation is you become a soul winner. Now we don't use that term like James is using it today in the church. We think about soul winning as going out and preaching 
uh, sort of are, are telling a gospel testimony and somebody coming to Jesus Christ for the first time, but that's not the way James uses it. The, new, or the King James Bible talks about the converting of the soul. But we're not talking about converting to Christianity. That's already taken place. He already has acknowledged that you brethren may err. James has already acknowledged that in verse 19. My brethren. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's talking to Christians here. He says to you who are willing to die to yourself, do something that's very uncomfortable and unnatural to the sinner, and go after and love your neighbor as God would have you love them, and win them back, he says, you know what? You are a soul winner. What a title. A winner of a soul. I want you to think about that, and we're not going to spend our time there this morning, but I want to ask you as we prepare ourselves to hear the coming messages, isn't that something that you might delight in? What's the opposite of being a soul winner? <laughs> a soul destroyer. Someone who doesn't say anything. Someone who doesn't care. Someone who lets someone... You know, if, if you saw somebody walking off to the edge of a cliff, I mean, any number of us would yell and scream and do everything we can to stop that person because of the death that awaits them by falling off the cliff. Well... That's a natural thing, right? But what about the spiritual world? We see a truth in that natural activity. What about spiritually? What's the spiritual truth? It relates to that. It's that we might see spiritual danger. And that's what he says. Look, he says, Who will turn a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from what? Death. Death. And another sermon that awaits us is going to be this idea. Amen. It's going to be this idea that brothers and sisters can err to the point where God will take them out. Now I want you to let that simmer. This is not a really this is not a light thing. We're talking about something we don't want to do. We don't naturally wake up in the morning and go, who can I admonish today? We don't, want, we don't like being admonished. We don't want to admonish. And yet we're called to do that. But to do it, James gives this great motivation. He says, guess what? You're going to be a soul winner. And you're not only going to convert them back. It means to turn them back, to bring them back to this truth. But you are going to save them from death he goes on to encourage us by saying not only death but notice what he says that conjunction toward the end that clause he says we'll cover a multitude of sins and that's a beautiful thing to have your sins covered to have sins covered is to have them out of the way they're no longer a problem they're no longer uh, intruding upon your duties. I mean, they're out of the way. They're gone. They're covered over. We, we don't see them anymore. We don't look at them. They don't have any more influence as far as it relates to the conversion and turning back and, and the fractures that may take place during that straying. 
Now, before I get into the sermon, all of this is introduction, let me also say this about this error and this wandering. Now, the word that is in the NASB here is strays, but the word is wander. It's, it's the, from the Greek word, we get the English word planet. And it's the idea of the, the wandering planets. They just stream across the galaxy. They wander. There's, there's no set path for them. They're stars. They're wandering stars. This wandering for the Christian never happens in one day. It's not something we wake up and think about, I'm going to wander off today. The wandering that James is dealing with here is a wandering that, that takes place choice after choice, decision after decision, day after day, month after month, year after year. It's that place that you end up that you never thought you would be because it comes so subtly. You just, you just find yourself one day unable to hear the preaching of the Word. You find yourself one day just unwilling to read it. You find yourself even, even unable to have an engagement of conversation about it. You're numb. You're cold. I mean, it's, it's still, you know, the, the Spirit is still saying, you need this. Because the Christian can never be devoid completely and wholly and fully of the Spirit when He takes up residence with us. And the Spirit's role is to always move us to Christ-likeness. To move us to understand and believe the Word of God. And so there's always this nagging. You know, it's this misery that comes on us. And you know how well we live with misery? We can live with some misery. We can live in the coldness and numbness of worship. We can come to church and be numb and cold and worship even for years. All the time our conscience is gnawing at us saying, where's the passion? Where's the love you used to have? Where did it go? You know God deserves better. I don't have to convince you of that. I don't have to convince any true Christian of what God deserves. No true Christian is ever going to admit that God only deserves 80%. And that's a high number. That's 80%. No, He deserves everything. Right? And when we come to these sacred times and meetings without giving Him our best, we grieve the Holy Spirit, we wound our consciences, and we take another step away from the truth because we know what we should do. I was convicted and reminded of how flippant we might be with our speech sometimes when we all when we say stuff like, I know I can do better. And I think there's a place and context for a statement like that. But brothers and sisters, when we use that statement, 
without any thought of remedy of that. Let me ask you this. To use that statement without any thought of remedying those things, does that honor God? Just to acknowledge that there are so many things we could do better. There are so many areas that I need to attend. Just the acknowledge of it, is that all that you want? Or is it to truly bring glory and honor to God by the conformity and the transformation of those things to that glory and honor? See, we're really talking about here, and, and James is really getting to the, the I think, the, the very heart of this matter. When you can read the book of James, and he's already, you know, given us the oh one two so many times, and he really has touched us in some sensitive areas, hasn't he? He's really, really put his finger on a lot of sin. And James is saying, listen, you think you're okay. But let me warn you of the probability that we all have to stray from the truth. And that's the sermon this morning. The message this morning is our proneness to wander from the truth. Because we do. Not habitually, I mean, but from moment and seasons we can find ourselves if we when we begin trusting in ourselves when we begin knowing a, a christian duty knowing a christian duty and putting it off and putting it off and putting it off without the without the heart to remedy that we are straying from the truth the old term that used to be used is backsliding. It used to be called backsliding. And it, you know, we don't talk like that today. We've, we've really spiritualized all of our sins and everything else. And we talk with such a pietistic, in such a pietistic way. We, we spiritualize even our, our digression and the sin and, and, and ex- really we're excusing it. But, you know, wouldn't it be something if we say, you know, Brother, I'm in a backslidden condition. Pray for me. I'm in a backslidden condition. I don't find the fervor in the presence of God's people anymore. I don't find the closeness that I once had when I come into the presence of God. It's not God's fault. It's not the Word of God's fault problem it's not the worship when we sing praises to God we pray we lift him up I mean the environment is conducive to drawing near to God I just don't feel it and I know I should I know he's worthy I I know I know it's even for my good because I know sin is begets sin. That's what James taught us in chapter 1. That's what James taught us in chapter 1, didn't he? He says, sin, these, these lusts and desires, when they break forth into sin, and the sin into practices, and the practices into death. Right? Where do they come from, James taught? Where did James teach us these lusts come from? Our own hearts. 
Which means, brothers and sisters, we do not need help in growing cold. We are naturally will go that way when we begin to believe things that are not true, desire things that are forbidden. And we're going to talk about some of this. But brothers and sisters, I know sin begets sin. And righteousness begets righteousness. Those both are equally true. That if I want to see conformity and transformation in my life, then I'm going to have to offer that gospel obedience. And I'm going to have to come to all of those means and graces that God's given me and give myself to them, trusting Him to mature me. See, that's what James talks about is maturity. Maturity. Well, let's begin to be more particular as we talk about some of these things. Now, these words are James is to put the best of Christians on guard, and I hope you are on guard this morning. I hope there's no one here this morning that doesn't see the possibility of you sliding into error and needing to be retrieved or reclaimed in the name of Christ. All of us, including myself. We're to hopefully keep a watchful eye on our doctrine, on our theology, and even our practice. That's our goal. When we come into worship and that, transform, and that transforming worship, that is, I come to the worship of God, I want to be shaped, I want to be molded, I want to be transformed, I want to be made more into the image of Christ my Savior who died for me, who shed His blood and was resurrected and now ministers to me as my prophet and my priest and my king. As one theologian put it, he says, along with these powerful influences of God's grace, think about it, you've experienced that. That powerful surge of God's grace, he says the Christian will also experience influences of the flesh. Sin. We don't expect it though, do we? And sometimes that baffles the unexpected Christian. They thought maybe that they would never again battle sin like they did before, but that's not the case, and we're going to see that in a moment. This particular theologian, he says, there are times where irritation, agitation towards God's words and duties come to be almost loathed. Now that's a strong word, isn't it? Loathed? And that's why he put almost qualified. You know why the erring brother or sister doesn't want to really come to worship, be under the preaching of the word? Because it reminds them of their duty. It remi- it's, a, it's, a, it's a reminder of where they are. It's a reminder of their straying. It's a reminder of the things they're not doing. And it becomes an agitation. And it becomes to that point where it becomes irritating. He goes on and he says, this brings shame and guilt to the believer. Why? Because he knows better. She knows better. And for a time, look more like the offspring of Adam 
than the new creation in Christ. There are those sins that allure us, entice, and present prevailing suggestions to minimize and mitigate God's duties of grace. Opposing all that's good and godly. What James is talking about here is the contrast that a believer can fall into. Instead of walking in the Spirit, they begin walking in the flesh. Now what's this term flesh mean? Well, it's a metaphor used by particularly Paul and John And it means rebelliousness. It's it's a metaphor used to talk about human rebellion. And we're going to look at some passages in a moment. It's the kind of thing that John Owen pointed out in Romans 8 when he talked about walking in the... If you're not walking by the Spirit, you're walking according to the flesh. There were only two, two paths, so to speak, for any person to walk. If you're not walking by the Spirit, you're walking by the flesh. And the only way not to walk by the flesh is to walk by the Spirit. And he went on to say this in his really famous exposition of that chapter. John Owen said, and I haven't ever forgotten it as I read his commentary on it. He said, If you're not killing sin in you, sin will be killing you. If you're not killing, if you're not bringing and coming into the worship of God, if you're not reading, if you're not reading your Bible, praying, making use of the Lord's Supper, I mean, when you come and and, and when you make use of the means of grace, are you mortifying sin and mindful of being transformed into the image of Christ? If not, then it's just an activity. If not, then you have to ask yourselves, what damage are you doing to your character if you think we can draw near to God, make use of these spiritual activities, and yet nothing be the consequence of it? I didn't say this last week when I was preaching on prayer and Elijah, but one uh, theologian commented, he said, anyone who prays to God without any expectation of answering those prayers or without any expectation of following up on that prayer damages their character. It's not good for you. Bottom line is it's not good to act spiritual and not be spiritual. It's dangerous. It's damaging. It's a wound. It's a wound. Brothers and sisters, our God is not. You're not friendly in that sense. That you can just do whatever you please and God's okay with it. There was, all of that was set up to train our consciences in the Old Testament. And how the priest, high priest had to come to God in a very particular way. Not just anybody could approach God. And not anybody could approach God with, with nothing in their hands that they were given who could approach God, how they could approach God, when they could approach God. 
Because God dictates how He'll be served and how He'll be worshipped. And God, Has God changed? Has God changed? James tells us in chapter 1, see we're coming full. James tells us in chapter 1 that God doesn't change. That He remains the same. That He's immutable. The same God who struck down Nadab and Abihu for their false worship is the same God we're worshiping right now. And if we don't come into this worship and presence and experience with a tender conscience and a heart ready to transform and be transformed and receive and to grow and to mortify sin and to put on our own righteousness so that we display Christ's righteousness, we're damaging our... We're hurting ourselves. And we're really mocking the means of grace. That we could come and frivolously play with them like toys, like children play with toys, and put them down and walk away with no consequence. You mean you come in and flirt with God? Yet flirtatious to God? Say the things He really likes to hear without, without now knowing He deserves it. And knowing you ought to do it. And always deceiving yourself by telling yourself, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. But you know you're not going to do it. That's a damage to your character. Brothers and sisters, it's like this. This, what's the role of the Spirit? When we walk by the Spirit, what's the Spirit doing? And I think this might be as far as we go today. When we walk by the Spirit, the Spirit is showing us Christ. The Spirit shows us Christ. And the Spirit shows us our true condition so that we might conform and have a desire to put off these sins that need to be dealt with. These are the sins that have come up this week or maybe even this month. And we come to the worship of the Lord right now to do what? Renew our faith, to renew our commitment to God. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's a renewing covenant meal. We are saying, oh Lord, I start fresh and anew today to gospel obedience. Where I have neglected the Word of God and my conscience that knows right things to do. I'm not going to do it. I come to renew myself and to give myself to you and to exalt you. The Spirit comes to show us Christ. The Spirit comes to show us Christ by bringing to us convictions so that we might tend to that conviction with repentance. The flesh won't show us Christ. And walk in the flesh, brothers and sisters, is to be about self. In Galatians 5, this is where we get this idea. And I want to spend some time here, but I don't know if I have time this morning to do this. I think I want you to really think about what I've already said in verse 16 of Galatians 5, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
Now the flesh is this rebelliousness. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. You see there the contrast. And the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that please you. That's all I want to say about that, ver- that chapter now. You see, the contrasting, the, the battle, the, the, the ongoing ensuing war that is within every Christian is will I walk by the flesh or will I walk by the Spirit? And if I'm not walking by the Spirit, then I am walking by the flesh. That's what, that's what Paul says here, isn't it? Now, if you're not conforming and you're not, you're not giving the Lord His due glory, I'm going to ask you something. Will you admit right now you're walking by the flesh? Now, I'm not saying perfectly. Because none of us can do any of the acts of faith perfectly. But a willingness to put our hands to it. A willingness to step in obedience and say, Lord, even though what I offer I know is not worthy of you, I give it for your honor and glory. Lord, I come by, the, by faith in Christ and I come to offer up this spiritual work of, of conforming myself to Christ. And I pray, oh God, that you would come and be my refuge and bless me. And Lord, bless the work of my hands in worship, not because I deserve it, because I don't, but because Christ deserves a people to honor His name. Christ deserves it. Christ deserves it. You know why Christ deserves it? Because of His humiliation. Because of His degradation. He laid Himself out for us. And now he's been highly exalted and the Lord went to him and he said, Son, ask the nations and I'll give them to you. And so we are a prize to Christ. We are, when we believe in Jesus and follow after Him and serve Him, guess what? We're the prize of Christ's exaltation. Now, now listen. Christ sees it as a prize. The Father sees it as a prize. The reclamation, the redeeming of sinners. But you know what? We sit back and we go, I'm not that much of a prize. And yet Christ glories in saving sinners. The the Spirit promotes grace and righteousness and godly character, even at great cost. The Spirit will teach us that it's costly at times to be godly. It is costly. What did it cost Christ to be godly? To be righteous in in the environment He was in? What did it cost Him? It may cost us. But the Spirit's okay with that. The Spirit teaches us to be okay with that. The Spirit teaches us to seek Christ for that refuge and strength because we can't do it in and of ourselves. Not the flesh. The flesh says, look, I will promote myself in pleasure and ease and I'll do it at even the cost of others. Right? I don't care who I need to use. The flesh says, I don't care who I need to use. I don't care who I need to disappoint. I don't care who I need to lie to. I don't care who I need to, I won't keep my word to. I am going to promote self. That's the flesh talking. That's not the spirit. The spirit doesn't do that. The spirit is all about conforming and transforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit desires to build us up and to exalt holiness and virtue. Not the flesh. 
The, the flesh is about self-interest. Helping those not make you feel good. And the only reason you help others is to make you feel good. You're not doing it for anybody other than yourself. If all you're doing is helping others because you want something back, you want to be patted on the back, you want a, you want a good name, and all, you're not doing it for Christian love and grace. When Christ came and gave himself, guess what? He did so without any payback. No payback. Not the flesh. The flesh wants their pound. Really. The Spirit will always show us the truth from the Word of God. But not just from the Word, but even naturally, we know it's wrong to murder. We know it's really wrong to lie to our parents and to lie to our children. We know it's really wrong when we're not what and who we need to be. We know that's wrong. That's naturally. But then we come to the Word of God, we see how the particulars work out. We see how it's offensive to God. It's damaging to our own soul and character. And listen to me, brothers and sisters. We have a whole sacred record of God's Word whereby we see men like Abraham, Moses, Noah, David, Hezekiah, Isaiah, sin. We see, you say, well, that's Old Testament, Pastor. What do we see? Zechariah. Zechariah was John the Baptist's daddy. And the angel came to him as a messenger of the Lord and told him that he and his wife were going to have a son. Zechariah didn't believe the messenger of the Lord and he was struck silent. Mute, the Bible says. For what? For not believing the word of the Lord. That's what you get. That's a consequence for not believing the messenger of God. You shall not speak until your son is born. What about Peter? And the Lord Jesus says, Peter, you will deny me three times, but when you turn back again, strengthen your brothers. We have John and James, the sons of thunder, saying, Lord, Who's going to sit on your right hand and left hand? In fact, Lord, let's call down thunder from heaven and destroy these pitiful sinners. I mean, how would you like to be under that James and John? You mess up one time and they'll be calling thunder down on you. Judas. Now, Judas wasn't a Christian, but you know what? There was a time when Judas went out and preached the Word of God and healed others. But he never gave his heart to the Lord. He, 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 never allowed, he never allowed himself. In fact, he loved money more than he loved God. That's what he did. He loved money. He was greedy. And he sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And he couldn't live with his guilt and shame. And what did he do after he did it? He felt great remorse and shame and guilt. And he went out and killed himself. Because even... Judas, as an unbeliever, knew that was the wrong thing to do. Now, how much more Christians? We know, don't we? We know we should not do this. We shouldn't do that. We ought to be doing these things, but not, not today. 
Brothers and sisters, we are prone to wonder. And we're going to talk about why we wonder next week. I didn't get there today. There's reasons we wonder. And we're going to look at some of those reasons we wonder so that we might be able to to better heed what James is telling us here. So I guess let me leave you with a few things and to think about as we leave this morning. I want you to think about where you are now. I don't want you to come and be guilty of, or maybe you have come and and really, you, you came this morning because it's, it's, it's habitual, but there's been no thought to coming into the presence of the Lord. No thought this morning coming in to worship God. No thought about things that you need to come and give yourself to. Things maybe happen, accumulated uh, during the week. Yeah, just, 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 just coming in the presence of the Lord and always expecting Him to bless us, but really never ever being active in blessing Him. That's what I want you to think about. See, there's some question about, as we look at this verb in James, where James talks about to wonder if it's a passive verb or a middle verb. Now, middle verb means it's something that the, the, the subject is doing, the, the, the same. <clears throat> That is, is he doing something to lead himself astray or is he being led astray? And you can interpret it either way. We do know that people are led astray. We'll talk about that later. But this, I think in particular, is that mindset of we allowing ourselves or leading ourselves astray by number one, not attending to the things we say we believe. Hmm. We say we believe in the sovereignty of God, yet we complain and murmur about providence. We treat, we treat providence like we're atheists. We don't treat providence like a Christian. We don't treat one another like brothers and sisters in the family and the household of faith. We treat more, more I mean, is there any difference in the Christian community? Then in the YMCA or some club, the way we treat one another. That's what James is talking about here, that we would love one another to the point where we would do the hard thing and go and reclaim the erring brother or sister. Nobody cares about it in the United Way or the YMCA. Don't care. It's not church. That's not the way church ought to be. We're a family. And there's supposed to be love for one another. And we're supposed to go after one another. And we're supposed to be willing to listen to one another. And we're supposed to be willing. The Bible tells us that the blessed are the wounds of a friend. Better than the flattery. The flattery of a deceptive friend. Just tell you what you want to hear. There are reasons we wonder. Will you go home today and truly think about why? Why you wondered? In fact, one theologian said, it's good 
the good thing about wandering is you get to know why you did it so you don't do it again. Be a student of your own life. Be a student of your own experiences. But whatever it is you're doing, are you drawing near to God? If you're drawing near to God, you're drawing near to His Word. If you're drawing near to His Word, you're drawing near to grace. If you're drawing near to grace, you're drawing near to His people. You're drawing near to all of these things that the Spirit has come into your life to promote and to do and to savor. You know what? You may go to the Lord this afternoon and you can say, Lord, Pastor Jess didn't cut me to the heart. You did. I don't savor these things like I used to. I have lost my first love. Would you, would you cause me to savor these things again? And I'm going to start acting in obedience and start praying for that. I'm going to start reading your Bible, praying about it. I'm going to start giving myself to, I'm not going to just worship to worship. I'm going to come and I'm going to worship to glorify you, give myself to you. I'm not just going to show up as a means to it. I'm going to show up to be transformed by your grace. Do that. And you know what? I think I can promise you prophetically, if you will, God is going to extremely bless you. He's going to grow you up. He's going to rekindle that, that godly fear in you. That time where you said, wow, it doesn't get any better than this. Is that closeness to God. It doesn't matter if you're in a trial. It doesn't matter. The trial is subversive to the glory of God, isn't it? If you focused on the trial, you're taking your eyes off the one who's your refuge in the trial. Trial's not the most significant thing. It's God's glory. Let's pray.